Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. In accounting, the professional world of accounting, you kind of decide what's going to happen to yourself. You decide which area you're going to emphasize. Uh, obviously, you go into a job, the job will have something to do with that. But, but really, in, in the final analysis, you decide what's going to happen to you. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. This week, I was very fortunate to be able to interview Ed Polanski. Ed shared his experience building a firm, many years later merging that firm into Weaver Tidwell, or now Weaver, and then recently his experience publishing a book, not an accounting book, I may add, but I'll save those details for the interview itself. It's really a great story. Ed, if you're listening to this, thank you very much again for sharing with us. I really appreciate it. Here we go. Thank you for taking the time out for this. I've actually been thinking about having you on the show pretty much since we got started, obviously due to your career, but I also wanted to find out a lot more about the book that you published recently. And then I heard actually just a few weeks ago that you had officially retired. And so I figured my window of opportunity may be getting narrowed depending on what your post-retirement plans were. So thank you for taking the time out for this. I really appreciate it. Well, you're very nice to even want to do this. And, and the, the way I like to refer to it, because somebody told me this, that you're not really retiring, you're just rewiring. And so in that sense, I hope I'm rewiring into other endeavors and things that I can stay involved and be stimulated. So I'm looking forward to having freedom, but at the same time, it's still a big adjustment to give up something you've been doing for oh, almost 50 years. Oh my gosh, I, I, I bet it is. I've never heard the term rewiring. That's that's a new one. I like that outlook. That's good. Well, my one of my former partners, a really good friend of mine, and she's the one that where she got. I don't know, but she she's the one that that proposed what it is I'm getting into. But she's she's encouraging me not just not to just shut down, which I'm certainly very much supportive of that approach. Okay. Okay. Well, wonderful. Well, I definitely want to get into the book because I just, as a little tease for later, I know it's not accounting related, so I know that's going to be interesting. To <laughs> it's a long way from being accounting related. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into that, though, since it is a podcast about life in accounting, I wanted to start with your career. Obviously, you've had a successful career, but let's start with how you got into accounting in the first place. What led you to even think about pursuing accounting? When I think back about that, one thing that kind of got me started was when I went to junior high school, and in those days, it was the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I was put into a, an advanced math class, you know, not knowing that I had any acumen for that. 
And so I had the same teacher and the same group of people together for three years, and we did, you know, dance math in the seventh and the, uh, algebra in the, in the eighth and the algebra two in the ninth. And I was just fascinated by math. And so I loved that. But then as I kept going and into high school, they went into much more advanced math. And I, I got to the point where now it's becoming so theoretical, it didn't seem practical. And so I started thinking, well, what would, what would be the use of math? you know, in a practical way that I could get a job at and, and do something with. And I had had, my sister had married into a family that her husband's father was a CPA, very successful. And I sort of noticed that he was an important member of the of the city and, and was involved in a lot of things and was, was successful. And I thought, well, maybe I ought to start thinking about that. And then I got a really good friend, and her father was a CPA, and he sort of encouraged me to do it. And I guess I made the decision probably in the 10th or the 11th grade that I was going to be a, a CPA, not knowing too much more about it, except that it had math and it was practical use of math. So that's what got me started. And, and in reality, I stuck with it all the way through. It, it just based how it, it sort of happened, partly because of what happened to me uh, during the time that I was in in college, uh, in junior college, and then when I went off to University of Texas in Austin. So just had really good exposures and, and people who encouraged me to, to, to go that route. So that's what got me started in that one. What kept me in it was probably some of the things that happened as I went along the way. In junior college, I, I was in the accounting class, and one of the professors referred me to somebody looking for a staff person with the local CPA, and I went over and started working with him. Uh, he was a sole proprietor, and it really started me into the into kind of getting a sense of what it was all about, and, and it just encouraged me, and I and kept at it. So that's how it all started. But there were a lot of steps along the way, and sort of led me in directions. I guess because I worked for a local CPA, the sole proprietor, I realized that that is not the way I wanted to practice if I went into accounting and to public practice because of stresses and, and there was just no support. And so that kind of led me into the seeking, a, you know, a national firm when I, when I got, out of, got out of college. Interesting. Okay. You know, that's, that's intriguing because I know at the state society level, a lot of the conversations recently well, on the local society level have been that, you know, we do a lot at the college level, but if we want to influence people to go into the profession, it really needs to start a lot earlier than college. <laughs> oh, I agree totally. Oh, yes. And, and that really, it really made big difference because when, when I got that encouragement and saw that it was, it was an interest to in me. I mean, I was interested in numbers and in, in mathematics and that, but I, I wasn't interested in math enough to go out and get an advanced degree in math and, and be a teacher. That, that just didn't, when you get into the theoretical and solid geometry and and uh, calculus and those kinds of things. I just didn't see the practical application. So, but I could see it in algebra and I could see it in plain geometry and those kinds of things that were going to be helpful. And, and in fact, it turned out to be the case. But all my career had been changing. I started out, you know, going, look, decide, trying to decide between public and practice. And then when I went into when UT, UT just happened to be one of the primary accounting schools in the country. I was just lucky that I went to that and and a lot of the national firms recruited there, and, and I had the opportunity to go with, at that time, with Arthur Young in, in Houston and started, started in the audit department and spent two years there in the audit department. And then I ended up going into tax and 
And then when we when they opened it off in San Antonio, they sent me to San Antonio. So it seems like my my career has always been evolving. Never really did the same thing twice. That was one of my great objectives in life is to never really do the same thing twice. You know, try to be at another higher level the next year. In the environment I was in, that's the way it was. You you know you advanced or you you left. And so having that as an objective really did influence the way I way I've always sort of operated and that is always bring people in have you know leverage yourself that was the that was what I learned I guess from working for that local CPA it was pretty hard for him to leverage he had to do everything really and as a result he couldn't leverage his time and from that I, I gained the at least the insight that told me that look you're always needing to bring people along and and have them do what you did last year now so that you could move on to something else so it was a fundamental kind of light bulb going on in my head, I guess, in that in that regard. Okay. And the reason I went from audit, I mean, with audit to tax, is I wasn't I wasn't skeptical enough, you know, of people. <laughs> I wanted to be a proponent as opposed to someone coming and always checking on other people. And and I remember getting bad evaluations over that. It's saying that that here in the work papers, you just said you talked to so and so, and you wrote down what they said. Yeah, and I, I tried to determine what it was that, that I was trying to find out. And they said, well, did you verify it? Did you check it? Did you question them? You know, it just wasn't part of my nature, I guess, to be a really good auditor. So it was an extremely good experience. I've always thought that my knowledge of taxes was, was so much helped by my time as an auditor, you know, working, in the, working with the clients and working out at their, looking at their books and learning about what they were doing really hands-on. Of course, that reminds me of when I was when I was an auditor with the local CPA, and I don't know. I think maybe just auditors could find this to be interesting. Is that that they wanted me to do the reconciliation of the checks, you know, from the end of the month to reconcile the bank statement. Well, what I did is I opened all the bank statements and put them in numerical order for the year, twelve months. Nobody told me what to do, so the effect of which is I screwed up the whole process, and there was no way to uh, reconcile the bank account. From that, and uh, I felt like a you know when it was all over, I realized what of a dummy I was. But I learned a lot from those kinds of experiences. So you try to learn from your mistakes. Which is, <laughs> I've done, I've had, I've made a lot of those over the years. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I ask about mistakes. So you're you're getting way ahead of me. That's not till the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know if you if this is the time for philosophy. But one thing that. I've learned many, many years ago was that intelligence is inversely related to how smart you think you are. The smarter you think you are, the less you're learning about things because the smartest people I know are those that when they learn something, they realize that all that's done is shown them how much they don't know because there's just so much to learn about everything. And once you get a little bit humble like that, you're always questioning yourself. And I think that, that's a good exercise to go through it. Hmm misconception I had was I had always thought that you started Polanski McNutt and Perry a lot earlier. And then when I was doing the research for this, I didn't realize you had left Ernst & Young as a partner and were there over 20 years. So what, what yeah. led you to decide? Lee, Lee. To, yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I've been through virtually all kinds of firms. You know, uh, RPM was probably was one of the big eights and it was the Probably number eight. And one of the reasons why I went there was because I wanted, I don't know, felt more comfortable in a little bit smaller firm. And we, we had, we came to San Antonio, then we ended up merging with a regional firm, Alfred Murrahami, and then another local firm, and then ultimately with Ernst. And I had been director of the Entrepreneurial Services Department 
at one time I was director of the tax at the Arthur Young in San Antonio. But it was always evolving to something else. Once the merger with Ernst, it, it had it was a couple of things, actually more than one, more than two or three things happening at one time. One, the merger occurred. We were the Arthur Young side was being absorbed by by Ernst in San Antonio. So the the Arthur Young was the was the being acquired. All of that didn't happen across the country. It, it did happen that way in San Antonio. And in effect, I went from being in a in a partnership of seven hundred partners to two thousand partners. And at, at that point, I think I realized that it was it was just not something I wanted to do for another twenty years because it was a different world than what I was used to at that time. It was changing, and obviously, it's changed for the better because Ernst and Ernst and Young has been a very successful firm since then, and I have lots of friends there. But it was just time for me. To go on, I, you know, the, the old thing about most people wanting to have control of their life is one thing. I, I think there would have been a good chance that if I'd stayed, I would have had to move to another office. And I, I just didn't want to do that. You know, I was kind of stationary then in San Antonio. I knew lots of people. And that's what kind of led me in that direction. It, it's you know, I was uh, at that time 45. So it was a major decision and one that, that I thought a lot about and at that point in time that they were a bit over partnered and were it was kind of a situation where it worked better for everybody, you know, that they were gonna have one pure partner in San Antonio at the time. But I was ready to go and, and do my own thing if I could. And looking back I, I wonder, you know, uh, that was a that was a major decision, but at the time it just seemed like the natural thing to do. So I don't know if that's an answer to your question. It's just that, that there was just a lot of things going on in Texas at that time. But I was a, I did a lot of work in savings and loans. I was a savings and loan uh, technical regional person. And then basically savings and loans went out of business in the 80s yeah. uh, because of the collapse of the industry. And we must have been doing 30 or 35 savings and loans in, out of San Antonio office. And I like the business, very interesting business. Love. That's kind of why it led me into the credit business afterwards because I thought that was a very interesting business. But it was it was really contracting substantially. And so it was just a it was a good time, I guess, to to change the direction of my life. Okay. So and then I went in with another firm and I and then ultimately I decided that wasn't going to work and then and then basically we formed the, the really the foundation of the of the firm going forward. Some people came from from Ernst with me and then People like Paul Perry, who was the office partner, managing partner of Arthur Young, and then the audit director in San Antonio, and then he retired kind of early, and he came in with us, and it was a it was a great addition. We had really had a great group of partners in, in the end. I, so I just really thought a lot of them, and so you know the ultimate question is why would we merge into Weaver, which happened ultimately twenty years later, fifteen years later. Sure, it wasn't planned. It it just it happened. <laughs> you you build, and this is one of the big advantages of being active in your professional organization. I mean, when I was in Houston, I was involved in the society and the chapter. And it got me to know people in San Antonio and across across the state, and all of those relationships kind of interconnected in the long run. Some became my partners, some became the firm that merged with us. So ultimately, with the uh, McLaughlin at at, Weaver, at uh, Weaver and Tidwell, so. You just never know how things are going to turn out in your life. Networking is really important. Patience in that and meeting people. It's amazing how they affect you in the long run. One of the things I try to encourage young people today is, 
be patient, build networks, you know, they don't pay off immediately, they pay off in the long run. So you just you just have to kind of have the patience to let something simmer until until they uh, they come they affect your life again. So I was rambling there. I apologize for that. No, 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 that's okay. So you know, what were the early years like with Polanski, McNutt, and Perry? I mean, I guess what, what went well? What do, you, what do you feel that you guys did right? <laughs> well, that's, well, we, we got some good people in there. You know, my, the, one of the people that I was able to convince to come to work with me was Laura McNutt. She was in my tax department at Arthur Young and then in, in Ernst & Young, and she came in, and she ultimately became a partner. Paul Perry was there. Mike Gentry was a ex-partner for Ernst and John Crider was with other firms. But in effect, we all just got together as we got to know each other and, and associated with each other. Mergers and acquisitions on the local level come almost primarily because of relationships and friendships. But on the same point, you got to have, you got to be professional and you have to be serious about what you're doing. And and the bad thing about partnerships is that if they don't work, they're just like getting a divorce. And a divorce can be very unsettling and, and certainly the kind of thing that creates a great deal of stress. And I went through that too. So I was very careful about who, after that, who I would take as a partner. It had to be somebody who had similar values and goals in life because it's like marriage. I'm some, I've been married for almost 50 years and I was fortunate to to pick great and, and marry up, uh, <laughs> and, and that's been beneficial. My wife has been involved in the firm. As a matter of fact, that's another big thing we didn't intend, but one day she came in to help us because she wanted to go back to work after raising the kids, and then she became the office manager because the one we had before ended up getting cancer and, and passed away relatively quickly. So. She came in and, and became the office manager. And, you know, I've heard of people saying it doesn't work well when the husband and wife work together. But in this situation, the way it works best is that you have separate duties and you don't overlap. And it worked great from that standpoint. So the nice thing of having control of the situation is you can make those decisions. They're not being made outside in another office. So that was really important to me was, was to have control over my future. Your wife was involved for many, many years, correct? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. And she's still working for Weaver. She's on the oh. on the point where she's trying to decide what she wants to do long term, you know. So she, but she's still, she's still doing it. So everything kind of surprises me a little bit about how, how things turn out. They're never, they're never the way that you expect them to turn out. But if you're flexible and you adapt, it's amazing what you can accomplish. Interesting. I didn't realize she was still there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. okay. She's worked. She's she's no longer the, man, the office manager. She's she's doing staff work, but I think she's closing the door on that at, at sometime in the near future. But I, I'm not making the decision. It's her decision. <laughs> and like you said, you married up, so that's <laughs> I definitely definitely did. I agree with that. <laughs> well, we 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 have listeners of the podcast at at all different points, you know, in their career. At the time we're recording this, uh, we generally get in the 250 to 300 listener range per episode. And so, and, and I know from the comments I see on social media that, that really, obviously we have a, a young contingent, so to speak, you know, people still in college and, and first few years after. But I know that we also have, you know, some that 
or easily in their 40s, you know, and, and probably after that as well. What, whether early or late, I guess, what advice would you have for someone that is, you know, thinking about their exit strategy and, and considering a merger? Well, uh, that's, you know, the, what you consider doing is, is, is something I learned many, many years ago and that in accounting, in the professional world of accounting, you kind of decide what's going to happen to yourself. You decide which area you're going to emphasize. Obviously, you go into a job, and the job will have something to do with that. But really, in, in the final analysis, you decide what's going to happen to you. And so I've been a big, big proponent of planning. You know, have a game, have a game plan. You know, have some kind of goal out there. Because if you have a goal, then you can evaluate all your choices. If your goal is to retire at 60 or 65 and then go and sail the world, well, you have to have a plan to get there. And I think that when, you, when you're in a firm and it's your own firm, well, you have to have a plan at the end. What is your exit strategy? What are you going to do when you think you're ready to hang up to cleats? Well, I think it's just a matter of considering all your alternatives because the way I see a lot of uh, sole practitioners and small firms, they're just happy. Hey, they're, they're in the concept of, well, you know, the last guy out turned the lights out. That's our plan. You know, we're just going to work as long as we can, save and, and be ready, but we're not going to do, we're not going to merge. We're not going to bring any more people. I've, I've got a very pleasant batch of clients and I'm happy to work with them. I'm working with them as long as I can and then I'm just going to turn the lights out. Believe it or not, a lot of people operate that way, and it's not the right way to do it, in my opinion. My opinion is, it is something when I learned as a kid that you decide what's going to happen to yourself. You're not just going to roll with the punches, whatever somebody else is doing. If you want to decide what's going to happen to you, you have to plan for it. And so my advice to everybody is have a goal out there. It's kind of like a strategic plan. If you don't know where you're going, then any road is good. And so the answer is to have that vision and then plan to reach that vision and always have that in your, in your mind and, and keep revisiting it. You might have to do a lot of mid-course corrections to get to that target because you don't know what's going to be thrown at you. When, when, at the time that we merged, we were talking in terms of working transition, bringing young people in and developing them to take over the firm. And we were on that process when Weaver and Tidwell came to us and basically convinced us that that what was best in the long run was was that merger and that they were anxious to come to San Antonio and we were the first target that they not maybe not the first target they talked to but certainly the one that ultimately generated their office in San Antonio and in the end and thinking back I think it was the right decision I believe that and and although I'm now they've graciously kicked me out after because of age, uh, we're still, I'm still very supportive of them and hope that their success will continue. So maybe that was a long-winded answer to a question that doesn't really have an answer. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's good. Actually, you you were still on, uh, in at least the of counsel position for many years. It's been at least five years, right? Well, actually what happened was I did retire as a partner and then I've been on counsel for about three years. And then it was, it's a situation, you know, it's the way the big firms operate. Obviously, they want those to retire and let the, the young ones, you know, carry on and, and develop. But it's been nice thing to be on counsel because I can still consult with my client and still be involved and be an active part of the firm. 
But, you know, there's a, there's a point at which, you know, I'm no longer managing partner, no longer making decisions. And, you know, it's time to go my way because their long-term plans are not the same as mine because my long-term plans are not as long as theirs. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, they're thinking longer than I do, and that, that's good. So I don't resent it. You know, I think it's time to make me revisit where I want to go and what I want to do for the amount of time that I have left. So I hope. You know, I can keep doing this for a, for a good while because I enjoy I enjoy this work. I think accounting is, is great fun and, and planning with clients is where you get a lot of your emotional payback. So it's in my it's in my DNA, I'm afraid. Just from an educational perspective and, and then we'll move on to the book, but from the time Weaver and Tidwell approached you guys until when the merger was final and the mm-hmm. office was a Weaver office, I, about how long was that? Well, it was, I think, April 16th of that year that, that Mac Lohan set up a confidential meeting that we started the, the discussion. And then I took it to the, I had four partners at that time, took it to the other partners. And relatively early in the deal, we, we kind of decided, unless it's a 5-0 vote, we're not going to do it. And it took us until about September to get through everything in which we had the final vote that yet we all wanted to do it for various reasons. None of us had really all of us had different reasons for doing this. And by the end of the year it was completed. So it took us about seven months to get through all the details and then the merger occurred as of January one of the following year. I mean you know, from April first to January. Sometimes they, they happen faster than that. Ours I think it took a while because it would have been their first step into San Antonio and we all had lots of questions, and they took a lot of time with us. And we spent. I went to. We went and visited other offices and tried to get a feel for how previous mergers, what they had started, was a number of years part of their strategy. And they started in the early early part of 2000s to start making themselves a footprint in Texas. And so in the end, they ended up with Fort Worth, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, and and Midland of all places. But but that was because they were on gas that they had expertise and that took them out there. So that was sort of the, the way it built. And I had been around regional firms. What had happened in regional firms like Offord Moroni is that they acquire a lot of offices and then in the end they, they get acquired. So it's always the bigger fish seems to be coming around to eat the smaller fish. But it's, it's never certainty how these things are going on because I've been involved in purchases of, of, of accounting firms, near mergers that didn't happen. And I've learned a lot in that regard. And to some degree, one of the one of the things I'm doing now in consulting is I do work with small accounting firms as a kind of an outside director. I mean, I'm not doing much of that, but I'm doing a little bit of that. And that these are firms that just need to, you know, kind of an outside look at what they're doing. And I, I think that's something more firms ought to at least consider the the local firms because they they get that outside perspective that they they sort of don't have. And just like an outside director on a public or any uh, company, uh, board of directors. Interesting. I didn't know you did that. Okay. Let's go ahead and move to the book. So tell us about the book. How long have you been working on this project? What's it about? This is a book, and and just to give a quick, it's about, actually, when I first went to work, when I was in high school, I went to work in the public library. And in doing that, I went all around, I was in all the different sections of the library, the reference department, children's section, the, the new books, and all the various sections. And so I got to do, it was really good for me because I had 
this is where I had really some good mentors that encouraged me to start writing because I did a lot of writing in college. And one became really my editor. She would always read my stuff, and she was great. And we got to be really good friends. But in doing the children's books, at that point, I'd read all those books, and I had this impression of mine, just someday I want to write a children's book because I don't like these children's books. They, they're written down to kids, and except Dr. Seuss. At that time, Dr. Seuss was big time. And one of the things that Dr. Seuss did was write on three levels. He wrote a book that would be entertaining to a child who can't read because of the humor and the pictures and that sort of thing. And then he also wrote it on another level where when a child could read the book on their own, they found it still at a higher level. And then it had to interest an adult because the adult was the one who's going to buy the book and read the book to the kid. So you have to, a good book, a children's book, I think, needs to be on all those levels. And so I thought, well, someday I would love to have an idea, inspiration to do that. Well, that inspiration came on a family trip back. My oldest one must have been about 12 or 13 at that time. And we drove up through uh, Dakotas. We went to the Mount Rushmore. We went to Devil's Tower. Then we went to Yellowstone. We came down through the Grand Tetons, went through Jackson Hole, Colorado, and one of the places that, and I'll come back and tell us story, but we stopped at a place in Colorado at the Royal Gorge. The Royal Gorge is a suspension bridge over the Arkansas River. And the Arkansas River is a thousand feet down. And you can walk across the bridge, you can drive across the bridge, and it's got planks in it. So you can see through the planks. And as you walk across, it kind of shakes and you have this vision a thousand feet down below. So if you have any acrophobia, it's going to affect you. And my oldest son had a little bit of it. I have some of it too. And he said, it would really, and I don't know if I could say this already, but it would really suck if you were a bird and afraid of heights. And I thought, God, that's a, that's a neat, neat subject to write a children's book on. And so from that moment, I started thinking about it. And that's been a great, quite a while ago, but that weekend I went home and I mean that it's the following weekend we were home. I wrote, first outline of the book. It's a long time ago. And then I started talking, well, what am I going to, where am I going to put it? Where does the story come from? And we went to a beautiful place in the Tetons called Jenny Lake. And we had been on a ranger walk and across the sky, this osprey flies over with the fish in his talons. And what the ranger said, you know, the one interesting thing about these ospreys is they turn the fish into the wind so that there's less drag on the fish while they're flying away. And I, fascinated by that. So in effect, what happened is my wife suggested, well, why don't you make a story about that osprey and make it, in, and then we talked about the location. We said, how about Jenny Lake right there in, in uh, Grand Teton? And the interesting thing about it is that the story is about the birds afraid of heights. Every year the flock migrates. And so since he can't fly high enough to go to the mountains, he's left behind. And so it's about how he survives with this affliction. And it's not in some miracle way. It's something he figures out. So that that it's a message. You know, they've got to have moral stories. And so that's what I like sure. about children's book. And this is about how, you know, a, a person, an animal who is designed to fly can't fly high. So how does he survive? And so that's the whole story. And hopefully it's entertaining at the same time that it is a message that is a good one for kids to, to learn. You know, you. A handicap shouldn't stop you from advancing or, you know, you, everybody has limitations, you know, it's, it's all about overcoming those in your, in your life. So that's, that's how it all got started. 
the book originally was finally published it the first time as a as a fundraising activity for the Texas Society, and then finally after that I focused on doing it professionally and. At least now I have it on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and, and so I can sell the book. It's out there. And the Oscar, Oscar name came from the alliteration Oscar the Osprey. So it's about him and his two, his brother and sister. I'm hoping to do a trilogy out of it, but, and I'm working on the second, second story now. But it, it's something, it's a, it's a hobby, I guess, but I, I like to write. And, but now there, I do have a website, and I'm doing some blogging and stuff like that, so... I've got things to do. You don't have to worry about that. But, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's, the, that's the story. I could do probably a whole separate episode on publishing. I, I don't want to get too deep into that. But I have an aunt that had worked on self-publishing and children's books. Yep. And I remember, I wasn't that close to the process, but I remember a lot of frustration. What, <laughs> is, <laughs> what, what advice would you have for someone that well, has this idea? It, well, it's since I first started looking at this years and years ago, I tried to you know, submit it to publishers and do it that route. And then, then when I realized, well, you know, you, it's the chicken or the egg. If you don't have, if you haven't written a book, then you can't publish a book. So you're kind of stuck in a do loop. What's happened today is because now, in the old days, self-publishing required a lot of effort and you had to produce a lot of books to make it justified. So, whether that means a run of a thousand books or five thousand books or things like that, that's why everybody's reluctant to do it. Well, today with kind of delivery on demand, mm-hmm. I didn't have to produce thousands of books to make it justified for a printer. Now you need a book; it can be printed. You need one book, and they also it's, it's got an ebook too. So the process is simpler than it used to be. The trick is just finding a reputable publisher that knows how to do it. And, you know, it's obviously what it amounts to. It's a somewhat of a joint venture kind. It's not pure self-publishing. It's, you know, they're committing something at the same time you're committing something, and it does cost to do it. So you're self-publishing. But it's a, it's a different process than it was, I think, 15, 20 years ago because of electronic. So the publishing on demand is, is a different animal than, than the old days. And now most books are not sold through the bookstores. They're sold over the Internet. There's just not a lot of bookstores around. Have you noticed? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You, so you mentioned it, it Amazon. <laughs> and, yeah, and they've changed the world. Just, just like iPhones changed the world in, what, 10 years. And it's just amazing what can happen in the, in, in the electronic world. So, but it is different and, and it is frustrating. I had a pretty good experience because they had good editors that, and on, the, on the, what I used and and I was able to get a Kirkus review and things like that through them. And I've got, I've got a copyrighted, I've got a Library of Congress numbers and things, which when I did it originally, I didn't protect any of that. So it, it, does, it does give you some protection that you probably wouldn't have done otherwise. So I don't have a, an agent or a rep, but someday I might try to do that, depending on if I have some success. But, but right now I'm trying some other things in terms of media, of social media, exposure so because it's the only way to make it nationally okay i don't know where it's going it's just now that i'm retired rewired say i've got some time to do that okay well i want to get to the the final four questions but before we do that is there anything else that you're involved in that you'd like to highlight or mention or you know any any cause you you want to bring up this will 
air, so to speak, in mid to late March. We've got to check the production schedule. But anything else you'd like to touch on? Well, over the years, I've been involved in a number of, of various nonprofit organizations, the, the area Community Area Foundation, the State Planners, and, and uh, but my latest activity has been as just I just retired as chair of the local public television station. And what it's done is really has uh, introduced me to a different form of communications out there. I mean, you know, the commercial television is is a different world from public television. And, and I'm not talking about radio. I'm talking about television because radio is, is in most cases, separate from, from public television. But what it does is the broadcasting of, of programs are just so much better. And uh, even the, biz- the business reporting, the news reporting is much more civil. And it's not all about screaming and hollering. You know, there, I really do believe that the biggest thing you want to accomplish in life is to understand people you don't agree with as opposed, you don't necessarily have to agree with them or have them try to convince you. Clarity is more important than agreement because once you understand why somebody believes what they do, then you can communicate. You can understand what they're doing. And I think public television goes a long way to achieving that. So I recommend people support their public television station because they're going through it. Most of them around the country are going through a tough time terms of, of finances. And so uh, they need accounting help and money help. So I would recommend people consider that. It was, it's been a really fun experience for me in, in my career. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You're the first person that mentioned PBS <laughs> on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> oh, try to be first. <laughs> well, getting, getting to the final question. First thing I always ask my guest is what's been your proudest moment? Well, I'd have to say probably when I was chair of the State Society of CPAs, you know, it's an organization of 27,000 people. So when I, when I was given that opportunity, it was a pretty special time that, that people would, would allow you to take that role. So I, I'd have to say that was, it got me a chance to go around the state and then go to nationally to meetings that, that just opened my eyes about a lot of things. So that would have to be it other than that's professionally. You know, obviously, uh, from a family standpoint, you know, having our two kids grow up and become really great kids and those kinds of things are, are really special. So but from a professional standpoint, I'd have to say that being chair of the state society was pretty special. It was pretty amazing experience. Yeah, that to be elected at the state level is, is quite an accomplishment, yes. Well, tell us about a mistake you made, what you learned from it. And frankly, the bigger example, the better. <laughs> Well, it was huge for me at the time, and, and that had to do when, when I made, I went the wrong place in a partnership. I had a non-compatible partner, and once you get into those situations and they, they don't agree with what you want to accomplish, what you're doing, I remember one in particular, I've had two that have been problems, but one in particular, I remember when I was talking to one of the staff persons, they came in and they asked me a question, and I said, Okay, now here, go look in such and such, and here's a place to kind of research that, and then go look at that person and come back and talk to me. Well, the person, my partner came in and sort of almost criticized me for doing that. And what his point was, oh, you should have told them what the answer was. Well, I knew what the answer was, but they weren't going to gain anything by me doing that. But it was a total disconnect for the way I thought you should develop people than the way he did. And that led to uh, our separation. So 
that one, and then, then because I moved a little bit too fast into another situation, I ran into a situation, not because it was bad at the beginning, but they changed during the period of time, and it changed the way they operated. And I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is it is it's like marriage. Be very careful about who you decide to be your, your partner forever, and that because it's so hard to undo it once once it's done. That would have to be those couple of experiences with bad partnerships led me a long way to where I ended up with when I had the best people I could have possibly had as partners at the time that we rolled it into Weaver. I was uh, yeah. The trick in life is to learn from your lessons. Try not to make the same mistake twice and move away from things that are bad to the things that are good. That's the approach you should take on everything. So I don't know if that is very enlightening or not, but when, when you asked the question, those things came to mind. Oh, well, thank, thank you for sharing that, actually. I, I, the quote I heard is that, you know, partnerships like a marriage, except that you don't love the person. And, and maybe that's a little cynical, but... <laughs> I, well, actually, what it, you know, that's an interesting point, is that, that in, our, in our situation, we came pretty close as you can to being a family and being really tied together, but you're still in a business world, and you have to have a professional relationship and respect what you're doing is dividing up the profits of the company. You better have a mutual understanding of how you do things because when you have a dictator, it's not a good environment. But it's a, you know, everything's a double-edged sword and everything is a balancing act. So you just have to do the best you can and weigh all the input you can you can get in, in making those decisions. I mean, it's, maybe it's a little too broad, but it, it's certainly guided me. Sure. Well, is there anyone that sticks out as being sort of the biggest mentor that you had in your career or biggest positive influence? In the career, actually, uh, there have been so many in my career, but the person that probably did it, when I worked at the public library, and one of the librarians there what, took me and helped me realize that I was intelligent enough to accomplish what I was trying to accomplish. And she was just a, an amazing influence in my life of putting things in perspective because I came from a family that nobody went to college. If I'd have done what my dad did, I mean, what, if I'd done what he wanted me to do, I'd been working in the refinery. I grew up in Corpus Christi and that'd have been it. But he did it for 35 years and, and was good at it, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. Partly because I remember seeing the refinery blow up one day. <laughs> they had this huge <laughs> fire. <laughs> And as I kid, I said, I don't know if I want to be ever around that much explosive power if I can avoid it. So it's things that, that influence you dramatically that you have to remember. And, and But she was the most single person. I was the person that was most singular influence on me was, was that person. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you don't have too many spontaneous 10-key fires. That's no, it's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be no, but very I good. Had, I, I had, and when I was not ago, I didn't climb on top of a tank to check the how much oil was in it. So I was okay. close to some of those things, as it turned out. <laughs> well, last question. Leave us with one more piece of wisdom. What's the best advice you've ever received? Oh gosh! You know, I, as I as I said earlier, it's that you decide what's going to happen to you. You know, you really in this profession. I'm I'm obviously very. I encourage anybody going to accounting that, that feel like they're interested in that thing because it's a great career. But what it does is you you really have a lot to do with happen, what happens to yourself. And 
And there, you can't say that about a lot of jobs. And a lot of jobs are you're dictated to, you're told what to do. But accounting, you can direct. There's so many ways to specialize in and in direction, whether it's public or private or industry or some technical field. It's just, it's kind of like every business needs accounting. It's such a important point of every business. So if you're interested in business, it's the best way to learn it, I think, how it works. Yes, yeah, you do have a lot of control over your own destiny. That's that's it, that's and that's a, that's a big because it's today we try to make everybody a victim. You know, you're a victim, so there's nothing you can do because the world's stacked up against you. And well, if you have that attitude, there's really not much you can do. And I think the, that's the wrong attitude. The right right attitude is you're in a free country. You have you have freedom of choice, and of course maybe that's the problem. There's too many things to consider, and how do you narrow it? That could be frustrating. Well, thank you so much. It sounds like there's lots of places to find Oscar the Osprey, but if if we wanted to buy a copy, where would you want us to go? <laughs> well, go to go, the best one would be go to my website, and that is OscarTheOspreyBook.com. Okay, and that's it's all small. It's it's all together in one. OscarTheOspreyBook.com. I know it's a little long, but I'm kind of just kind of trapped in that one, but that's where to go. You can also find, you can go in and just Google Oscar the Osprey and it'll, I don't know if it'll pick up that yet, but it'll certainly pick up Amazon and Barnes and Noble or whatever. But I, I appreciate you letting me put in a little, little something about that. Oh yes. No, I, I, I love including personal information and that just, that makes it that much more interesting. So I'm glad you did it. It sounds like the world need another good book. For a minute, I thought you were going to say your most, uh, your biggest influencer was Dr. Seuss. <laughs> well, like I said, there's just so many influences, you know, wonderful teachers and people that, you know, make you achieve something that you did first didn't think you could do it. You just didn't think of yourself as being capable of those things. But you need somebody, you know, a little encouragement to keep going. But find, find those mentors. I'm a big fan of that. Yes. Well, thank you again, Ed. I appreciate you sharing your time and, and your life story with us. I, I think this is going to benefit a lot of people. So thank you again. Um, so, Mark, you're, you're very kind to say that. Uh, I hope it wasn't a waste of your time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Well, we'll talk to you again soon. I hope to run into you somewhere. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, Ed really does have a great story. He's well-known statewide, actually, in the accounting profession, but I think it's really cool that he was able to bring his book to market as well. It's an idea he basically had back in high school, so it's really neat to see that dream finally come to fruition. This has been another episode of Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Please do visit our home website at www.whereaccountantsgo.com for notes on this episode as well as all our previous broadcasts. If you'd like to check out Ed's book or even order a copy, please visit our show notes page as well where we have a link to Ed's website. We'll be back with another interview with another accounting VIP next week. Until then, there's more to come.